Hello, everybody, this Saturday night. We got a wild Saturday night going on tonight here. All kinds of switching and clicking and pictures and phones and guys in the staging area, guys out of the staging area, me in my seat, and Judy on the phone from Canada. Hello, Judy. Hello, John. Hi, everybody. Good to be here. And, of course, I got to put that out there. Can you see me? Can you hear me? And can you hear Judy? Everybody out there, let me know. There's always that delay, Judy, you know what I mean? Yes, right. I haven't picked you up yet, so. Okay, Jason says we're good. Tammy says loud and clear. Both of us are on, then I'm going to have to switch it out. Once you say your synopsis, Judy, then we'll have to switch it out. Thank you, Tammy. Thank okay. you. Okay. All righty. All righty. I want to thank first everybody on the Facebook Quest side. I want to thank everybody on the YouTube side. I want to give a special little shout out to Gene McLean, who joined my paid site on the YouTube side. I thank you so much. Um, you'll have to upgrade to get more shout outs. Uh, you're just a soldier. And if not, it's okay with me. I want to thank Annette, Jean, Cindy, Scott, Tammy, Roxy, Elizabeth, Sarah, Becky, Michelle, Annette, Jazdia, Wayne, Starlene, and our big Templar Grandmaster, Renee Tunnel. And also for Judy and Barbara for their support for me and this channel. I thank you guys so much. So much. Thank you so much, Judy. You're welcome. Yes, sir. Yep. Tonight's uh, format is uh, Judy will be doing her normal uh, synopsis, and then she'll be getting off the line. And we have our uh, special guest that came back, uh, Chris Dona, which I label him the star man, and Jake the Snake Roberts waiting patiently in the staging area. And I hope when I bring him up, that everything's okay. I thank everybody for coming in tonight. We also uh, want to uh, promote a little bit on Jake's side. He's got a book coming out, The Holy Trinity Description, Decryption. And uh, he'll tell you more about that, where to purchase it, give us a picture, and go from there. I thank you so much, Jake. Hello, Virginia on the YouTube side. Tammy. Pam Block. Anthony, how are you, Anthony? Kathy and all the rest of the gang. As chat goes by so quickly, I only see four or five names at a time. Sorry if I missed you. Jenny from the YouTube side. Becky from the YouTube side. We've got a great show tonight. Virginia from the YouTube side. You're welcome, Jake. You're welcome. Um. Judy, let me find your picture here. Okay. <laughs> How's the voice sounding tonight? The voice sounds pretty good on my side. Good. Good to hear. A lot of things happened this Tuesday night. Hello, Michelle. Thanks for coming in. Cindy, how are you? Let me see here. Already we have Judy's picture. Up for the world to see. Hi, Renee. Thanks for coming in. 
And Judy, whenever you're ready, it's all yours. Go ahead. Okay, thank you. Good day, everyone. As I write this, it is St. Patrick's Day, and everything is green, including my grass here in southern Ontario. Spring has sprung, and I'm wondering if the fellowship has started digging on Oak Island yet. Let's hope it's a good hunting year for them. Now let's see what they found in episode 18. It's a new day in the swamp, at the swamp, and Marty, Aaron, and the team are digging to find more of the stone road. Marty finds it hard digging because there are so many stones. Aaron finds another wooden stake. Marty finds stake two and Rick stake three. All of these are on the border of the road. They decide to have the stakes carbon dated to get a timeline of the road. Marty says, where does this road go? It seems to be going in two directions. They will keep following the cobblestones. Terry and Charles are digging borehole C3 in the money pit area. They are looking for a shaft, but the evidence is leading to a tunnel. A new tube hits the table, and at 87 feet, they find more wood just the same as the last five holes. Rick arrives and agrees it's a tunnel and wonders if it goes to the money pit or somewhere else. Keep following the line is his order. The following morning in the swamp, Rick, David Fernetti, Billy, and Miriam conclude that the road is going uphill and is 500 feet from the money pit. Could it also be heading in a second direction and where to? Rick finds a bunch of puddles blue clay that shouldn't be here. It was found in the eye of the swamp and the money pit shaft. They believe it was used to keep these structures from collapsing. Was it brought to Oak Island? Later, Gary, David, and Michael John are digging on lot 15 near the pine tar kiln. As Michael John breaks up some hard-packed mounds, Gary metal detects. They dig up a heavy metal rod, and Gary says, what the heck is this? David digs up two more, and Gary pronounces them old and hand-forged. To Carmen's they go. Two days later in the war room, Craig gives the team the results of the carbon dating of the stakes found on the edge of the swamp. Sample 112 dates to 1719 to 1826, and sample 113 to 1636 to 1684. This is prior to the search periods and before the finding of the money pit. Rick says, why the difference in the dates when these were found so close together? He's more confused than ever. They must keep digging. Later that afternoon, on the eastern edge of the swamp, Aaron shows Rick the boundary line between the swamp and the road. It is going left. Or is it going right, left, or straight? Is there more than one road? 
Anne finds red-colored stones that are stacked uh, that go uphill to Lot 15 or the money pit. Keep digging. Later, Charles, David, and Dan Hensky arrive at Carmen's shop with the three metal rods found earlier. Carmen declares these heavy, triangular-shaped rods are legs off of a signal cannon from 1710 to 1720. Was someone trying to protect something here of great value? Hope we find out soon. In a swamp on Lot 15, Rick, Marty, Ann, and Gary are trying to figure out where the road goes. Gary's beeper goes off, and they find a large boulder with a hole drilled in it and a piece of iron in the hole. Because they know that Fred dug here, they called in Tom. He has seen it before when his dad originally found it. It was a ring bolt that Fred cut off 50 years ago. This could be a breakthrough. Something high and heavy was built here by human hands. They will investigate further as everything here seems to be heading to the money pit. Just maybe we will find out more this season. Have a great week, everybody, and everyone stay safe, please. I thank you so much, Judy. You're the best. Of course, this will be posted to our site, our group, so everybody can see the details. Judy, very good job. Fantastic. Thank you. Everybody have a good night. Yep. I thank you so much, Judy, and um, I'll be talking to you later. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Alrighty. Okay. Well, guys, Judy does a fantastic job, but somehow the phone was interfering with our uh, live stream to the guys, so she had to get off the phone. Another problem we'll have to try to figure out later on. Alrighty. Let me get my streaming service ready to bring these guys upon you guys ready here we go without further ado i want to bring in chris the Starman donor and jake the snake roberts to join me finally i'm not mumbling by myself this saturday night i thank you so much guys Thanks, John. Thanks, John. You make this sound like a pro wrestling uh, duo here. I was, I was going to say something. We're a great tag team. <laughs> How are you guys doing this evening? Very good. Cool, sir. Thanks. You guys are the best. You're my first, second rounders, as they say in baseball, <laughs> to come back. I mean, like I said to you guys, every time I'm on live, you guys are always participating in my group. I love that also. I really appreciate you guys uh, 
and I see that in the chat. And of course, I got to say, well, come on on, come on on. Here, you got the link. And everybody says, oh, no, no, I'm not going on with Crazy John. I don't know what he's going to ask me or what he's going to do. <laughs> well, we love your group. Uh, everybody yes, in it, should, just good people. Very good. Um, yep, they're the best. But um, a lot of things happened Tuesday night as uh, Judy was reading that big synopsis with a lot of dates, you guys. A lot of dates were coming at us. What do you think of all these dates coming at us? And then we'll start your presentation in a little bit. Boy, it's right during that French period. All, the, all those dates are just centered right around that French occupation, you know? It, to me, it points more and more uh, uh, military uh, than ever. What do you think, uh, Jake? <clears throat> well, uh, there are a few different options there. You know, uh, the French occupation there for, was, um, gosh, quite a, quite a while. And so it, it spanned every decade, or I'm sorry, every yeah decade from the beginning of the fur trade right up until uh, they were ousted by the British. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. And then these dates, these dates, I mean, they say always follow the science. So after eight yeah. years, you hear all these theories and stuff like that. And I'm just saying for myself that we always have to follow the bottom line, the science. And like I'm going to discuss later on tonight, and I just want to put this out there because it will be current that they find the so-called um, survey stakes um, at the swamp site, as you know, as long as you keep uh, present on the known knowledge, and they're 100 years apart. Now, how can you have a staked-out road, pathway, and foundation and have wood 100 years apart? The only thing I can come up with is just wood from a different tree, wood from a different ship, Something that threw that off because those two stakes, one can't be searcher and one can't be depositor having the same design. Once you design something, obviously that's designed. You don't come back and design it again. And just give me a little tidbit on that and then we'll start with your presentation. Uh, well, I think it could have been, uh, you know, reused maybe. Um, maybe some of the stakes are from there, but maybe. Uh, it was brought from wherever also. I mean, two different trees, like you said, but from two different time periods. So, you know, it could have been, I, I don't know. Yeah, that's the only thing that I can think of. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I'm thinking that um, all of those are possibilities and you don't want to rule out any of those possibilities, but I would also suggest that this is a site that has been used and reused and it's the same technology you see happening in both situations, the same design of the stake. And that would imply it's the same group with a tradition of using the island. That's the only thing I can think of. Right. Yep. Well, there's so many different aspects of what's going on and so many people have been in and out of that place. I don't know how they're ever going to straighten out this full-time story because there's always sections that the story will be told. And then you go to another section. It's a completely different story, completely yeah. different new people. It's just so many sections. If we can just do sections, that would be fine. You know, not minimize it to one, you know, one decade or something like that. Yeah, it, it was used by, 
many throughout the years. I think, you know, you've got to, you've got to think French though, when they, when they turn up during that period, it's just, it's hard not to, uh, pin the Acadians, uh, the French during that time for the work, whatever work was done during that time. It's hard to tell from stone, uh, such as Nolan's cross and the, the stone triangle, but the wood, you know, that, that, that speaks. Yeah, like the cribbing underneath the stone paveway or foundation that I still think it's a foundation for a wooden wharf. You know, I even asked Dr. Spooner on here. I put him on the spot because I don't know what I'm saying half the time. <laughs> I said, well, why are you guys always concentrating on this 20 by 70 small paved area and a little pathway when you have something I don't know, it's like 220 yards by 75 yards up on top, the other pathway. I mean, I would look at the huger pathway first than this little little one down on the bottom, you know, and I just can't figure that out either, so I have no idea. Well, I think there would be something to be said for if they really analyze that isolated area first. Uh, there's a lot they can learn from there. They, they found the cribbing. Right. Uh, they can compare the structure there with the one that's farther up, the larger one. Uh, and that would also indicate that again, it was the same group of people. Yep. Yep. Over time. Yep. I hear you. Well, why don't we start with the presentation and then we'll get into maybe Judy's synopsis with things uh, current. If you guys want, that's all up to you guys. So what do you want to do first there? Whatever you guys want to do. So, What's uh, that, Chris? Yeah, with this John show, <laughs> you do whatever you want. You're running the show, John. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> now we're in trouble. All right, we'll have uh, Jake go on first. Um, do All you right. want us to uh, – you need the slide and you need the uh, sh screen share, Jake? Yeah. Okay, so Chris and me will be away. Let us know, Jake, when you want us back on, and then we'll come back on. Okay, sounds good. All right, here we go. Hang on with us, members. I'm only by myself here, so hold on. There we go. All right, gang. Um <clears throat> Chris and I kind of pooled our resources and we have this uh, presentation that uh, of some of our current research, where we're headed, you know, uh, you know that we both have been really looking into Shakespeare's plaque and uh, his the funerary, funerary, funerary monument plaque. See, John, I should have had uh, something other than water tonight. So um, as I said before, what I was doing was I was following the work of others. Uh, for example, you know, we are, we're all familiar with uh, Pater's work. Uh, one of the very first seasons on Oak Island. Uh, of course, Chris Morford's been on the show here and been on uh, the Curse of Oak Island multiple times. And, you know, he was sharing some of his information with me um, as well as obviously Chris Dona. And so Chris mentioned to me that this was an area where everyone was really starting to really focus some, some time. And so <clears throat> I had become interested in steganography over, over a period of about a year. And it was dabbling in it here and there. And what I ended up doing was uh, when I looked at the plaque, I ended up taking a completely different approach. 
whereas a lot of people are concerned with you know identifying shapes and and, and pulling out words, um, <clears throat> you know, just on the plaque surface. Uh, I, I saw that uh, the features of the plaque itself hinted to me that there was something called a transposition cipher. A transposition cipher is where uh, you have a key, which is a number. Uh, sometimes it's a word that you translate into a number, and you use that number to count that many characters, and you pull that character out once you hit that number, and then you keep on counting and pull out the next one. And in that way, you can set up an algorithm that rearranges all of the characters in a completely new order. And that's what I did. Um, I was able to, as you notice, uh, some of the features uh, of it, we had these con what people call the conjoined TH, okay, a ligature TH. That's actually a T joined to another T that is sideways to make it look like a TH, if that makes sense. Um, it's actually a symbol of the triple tau, which is a symbol of Francis Bacon. Um, for, for a variety of reasons. TT uh, can also stand for 33, which is Bacon's simple cipher signature. And then you also have uh, in his fourfold cipher, something we haven't really talked about on the show before, um, is the triple T value in fourfold is 67, which is Francis in simple cipher. So all of these letters, for example, right here in the word monument, you'll notice, okay? Um, we have the M-E spelling me and then an N-T right next to it. Uh, down here, we have this weird Y with a T over it, which represents the word that in a form of shorthand. And then here we have the same thing with an S over it, meaning this. And yet over here on the plaque, you'll notice we actually spell out the word this. So all of these inconsistencies told me transposition cipher, those characters are specific um, and need to be rearranged. And that's why they count as one character together. You move them together. And so what I ended up doing was counting the number of characters on the plaque um, <clears throat> and then figuring out what the keys were. And that was obviously one of the most important parts of the process was figuring that out. So in the process of doing this, this leads me to what um, I, I'm actually talking about this evening, which I, I call the Ghosts of Bacon. This is a riff on uh, a, uh, a Sir William Raleigh publication of verses that were eulogizing, eulogizing uh, Sir Francis Bacon after he died, what I believe was actually a philosophical death, by the way. Um, and what happened in the process of deciphering this plaque is I discovered several of Bacon's aliases. Now, we know that he was into spycraft. We know that he and his, his uh, what I call his stepbrother, Anthony Bacon, uh, were some of Queen Elizabeth's leading spies. So his first alias, of course, that, that everyone is probably familiar with at this point, anyone who's related to this material is William Shakespeare. Uh, the plaque definitive, definitively states that Bacon says that he wrote the works of Shakespeare. Uh, the next one was really weird. Was uh, The next uh, alias I came across was Tiberio Tinelli. He was a Renaissance artist, which suddenly this opens up a whole new avenue of research of Bacon as an artist. Now we know, as you're going to see in the presentation, he spent time in France as a teenager. Um, and so he would have studied art while he was there, very close to the source of the Renaissance. So um, <clears throat> and like I said, when he was between the ages of 16 and 18, um, he was a part of uh, the entourage of Amias Paulette, 
the ambassador to France at the time. And so, like I said, Francis and Anthony were spies. And as such, when they both came back from France, I, I think they set about setting up all of their aliases so they could set about doing their, their spy work. And so as an artist, um, if they were able to create an alias that, that seemed very real, uh, that would give uh, Francis Bacon access to some of the royal courts all through Europe, where he could be painting uh, portraits and so on and doing art, uh, uh, as you can see, miniatures uh, that the monarchs could then send around and pass around for so that people would have their likeness. And so that was, I think, also a long-term plan that they both created in order to help Francis uh, with his situation. Um, his aliases, among other things, are cartographers, sailors, and navigators. Um, so this, this is one of the discoveries that really kind of blew me away, but it made a lot of sense. Um, when he came home and he didn't have uh, an inheritance from Nicholas Bacon, like all the other Bacon siblings, um, he would have needed some money. And lo and behold, comes along um, his new buddy, Sir Francis Drake, and he sailed with him. That's one of the messages on the flag. You heard it here first. So this one, all of these things together, there was one name that kept cropping up over and over and over again. And this was a key alias that led me to a lot of other discoveries that helped me unravel this mystery. Uh, and that was Nicholas Hilliard. Uh, Nicholas Hilliard uh, was a miniature artist. Artist, He did miniatures of Queen Elizabeth that she would send around while they were shopping around for her husband for her. Um, he was a jeweler and a limner. Um, and so he had the, um, all of these different talents. And here you'll see uh, what I have here as a picture is uh, – Francis Bacon as at the age of 18, uh, which is kind of funny. And like I said, he did portraits of uh, people like Queen Elizabeth, Catherine de' Medici, Elizabeth of Bohemia, the Winter Queen, that was James's daughter. Um, and then Francis Bacon. And meanwhile, none of the other Bacon family members had ever had a portrait done by Nicholas Hilliard. I thought this was very strange. And of course, as I mentioned, Sir Francis Drake, uh, uh, Nicholas Hilliard created what was his been called the Drake Jewel. It's a very famous uh, jewel um, that he created with a portrait of Drake on the back of it. Um, as I started to unravel a lot of the secrets, I discovered that uh, I think Francis Drake was uh, one of Francis Bacon's greatest role models. And like I said, this is uh, Francis Bacon 18. So let's compare this. Uh, um, as I said, his years in France, he studied art. But if we look at this picture, and we start to um, recognize that if this was his first alias, then this is actually a self-portrait. And what's interesting is that Nicholas Hilliard did do a self-portrait. And there it is. Um, when we uh, start to really look at these more closely, and, and we consider that this is uh, Nicholas Hilliard's first self-portrait, um, which one is the self-portrait, or maybe both are. And when we look at them side by side, um, let's put it this way. If he was the artist, he could easily change the hair color and add this theatrical-looking beard, because let's face it, it looks like it's something that would, well, an actor would wear in one of Shakespeare's plays, for example. Um, so, you know, when I first looked at this, I said, well, this resemblance is pretty uncanny, uh, except for the hair color, which, of course, the artist with his palette what he does is he just changes the color of the hair. Uh, and so 
before I get into some of the nuts and bolts of this, uh, everyone needs to become familiar with the AA signature used by the Rosie Cross and basically Francis Bacon. Um, at the top of a lot of the um, headpieces of, the, of their manuscripts, you would have something like this called the double A. You can see the A that is here in light and then the A that is here in shadow. And so uh, these represent the ideas of um, Apollo in the light as the, as the god uh, of the sun. And then you have Athena in the shadow. Now, this is really interesting because not only was Nicholas Hilliard a, a, an alias, but he also, uh, either he really was married and this person existed, or they created a wife uh, to make him seem um, uh, more legit. And so what, one of the things you have to remember about history is that historians, you know, and rightfully so, uh, they basically base all of their writings and base their findings on anything that's written down. And so what Anthony and Francis did um, after France, they set up a, a Scrivener shop. They organized a bunch of writers and they just started writing ciphers. They started writing letters. They were writing all kinds of things. And I think a part of what they did there, and this is a little speculation on my part, but I have been gathering evidence for it, is I think that they created a whole host of personas and wives and parents uh, and created a paper trail to make it look like these people were actually real people. So when I looked at the portrait signature, and you can see it right here on either side of his wife, Anne's head, is Hilliard's signature here with his initials. Um, and this was one of the only portraits I found where he actually used this. But uh, when we take a closer look at it, there you can see it. It's um, an H superimposed with an N and then a mirror of the N. And that's going to prove to be important. A close-up of this uh, reveals, well, what, what I just showed you on the screen, the double A signature. And so this is a signature that um, appears on Bacon manuscripts all the time. And here you can see it, uh, one A here, the other A there. And so the closer I looked at this and started getting into it, one of the things that keeps coming up with Bacon's um, aliases is the fourfold uh, cipher, which I'll explain in a moment. So suddenly this is supposed to be an NH, but then there's a mirror N, which is weird. He only has one N in his name. Uh, so obviously in the world of ciphers, when you see a mistake, that's a clue uh, that there's a cipher there. Uh, there's a message here to be found. So one thing you have to understand about the fourfold cipher, um, what it is, it's basically Francis Bacon's simple cipher. Francis Bacon's simple cipher starts at A and it's as one and it extends to Z as 24. There are only 24 letters in the Elizabethan alphabet. The fourfold cipher just basically keeps going and just tacks on three more uh, alphabets after that. And so what you end up having is the first one is just A through Z, but the second alphabet, its values of 25 through 48 are actually um, correlated with AA, BB, CC, all the way through ZZ. And then that continues with the triple values of AAA through ZZZ. And then the fourth 
uh, value ends at 96 at ZZZZ. And so that's called his fourfold cipher. And whenever you see double letters like this, what happens is you can use the fourfold cipher to find out if there are any signatures there. And that's what I did. And so likewise, along with our AA, you have to realize that there is a mirror image upside down with the A here going that way with a line across and vice versa here and here. So when you calculate these values of these letters using uh, the fourfold cipher, four, four, four A's is 73 NN, there are two N's, equals 37. Then you have the H, which actually uh, is a double tau symbol. So I counted that as TT, whose value is 43. Now, uh, please note, those of you who are familiar with the traditional simple cipher system, um, NN would be 26 and TT would be 38 in that. However, since we're looking at the fourfold value, uh, they're different. The sum is 153. Now, if you remember my last presentation on this show, uh, this is a definitive Francis Bacon signature. Um, later in life, it represented I, Sir Francis Bacon. There's just one little problem. Um, he didn't have that title back then. He was only 18 years old. So where did this cipher signature come from? I had to do some digging to figure that out. But first of all, uh, in reverse cipher, 153 uh, represents the words, is the value of the words King Bacon. So even in that time period, he knew what his birth rate was. And uh, he was signaling in just this one little signature that it was, this portrait was done by King Bacon. So um, the other thing, too, it also uh, represents his true identity in two different forms um, that I'm not going to share tonight because I don't want to get into uh, his true identity. I don't want to give too much away here. Uh, but if you remember my last uh, presentation on the show, I pointed out that me the conjoined ME that I pointed out at the beginning of this presentation, when I counted all of the characters uh, on the plaque, ME is number 153. Now, by the time the plaque was made, yes, the way they would be spelled equal 153 in different ciphers. So I have other clues uh, that uh, kind of point in the direction that Nicholas Hilliard uh, was one of his aliases. Uh, the simple cipher counts and the symbolic letters um, and, and doing uh, his signature during the calculation. Uh, what happens is there are symbolic letters that are uh, important to uh, the RC, the Rosie Cross, and Francis Bacon. And they are primarily the A, which represents, obviously we just saw that, but it represents light. But it, and it also represents the idea of shadow. Uh, we have the letter O, which is basically looking at that A as it's shining downward like this, looking down upon it, and it becomes a circle. It's an O. So it's also a symbol of light. And plus, in our, in our uh, simple and reverse uh, uh, substitution system, it's like an at-bash uh, substitution system, you can substitute between letters between simple cipher and reverse cipher. And the substitution for O is L, the letter for light. So what I found was when I was calculating the signature of these alias names, usually whenever all of a sudden I, a, a um, regular 
Sir Francis Bacon cipher signature popped up, the following letter would be one of those symbolic letters. And um, also uh, the names themselves are often puns along with signatures. So uh, if we look at Hilliard and, and consider the phonetic letters that act as words, you see IR. And so A says, look here. And on either side, you see IR. Okay, so in the cipher systems, the phonetics are usually important, and then they're uh, telling you a message. I suspected because of the, the original quote-unquote mistake that there was some sort of signature here, and now this is leading me to look as, as a trail of evidence, looking for more um, uh, meanings here that might be a clue. And so when you take IR out and take the rest of the letters and add them up, it equals 44, which is uh, Bacon's, what's called his quote-unquote, secret signature. Now, there are a whole bunch of reasons why uh, this number 44 represents uh, Francis Bacon. Uh, we don't have time tonight to go to all of them. But um, uh, one of the reasons is that for is the simple value the word rex, which is uh, Latin for king. So I'm going to leave you with that. That, but so oh, my overall conclusions, you know, I, I do have other evidence, obviously, uh, that also corroborates this dealing with multiple cipher signatures, as well as um, a whole chain of people around Francis Bacon and Hilliard painted portraits of all of them. Uh, so his cipher signatures in simple reverse and K, uh, nearly every single one of them are Bacon signatures. That's why I think that this was one of his very first aliases, because he made it pretty obvious. Um, now, people, like I said, would point out the difference, differences perhaps in these two portraits, but um, it's pretty easy to um, take a look at it and recognize that the artist himself uh, would be able to put those differences in there. So, like I said earlier, the artist controls hair color because he's the one holding the palette. Um, again, you know, I, I think the theatrical beard um, is, is kind of a cool touch. Um, <clears throat> And it's not exactly the style. Also, one other thing that we have to remember about history, and that is particularly in the Renaissance, uh, there was this tradition of people kind of faking their ages. A lot of times they didn't really necessarily know their true age. Um, and so when you see a difference of age on portraits like this, we have to remember that it's not a timestamp. The artist himself was the one who was writing that number on there. So, um, like I said, these are prime examples of what a spy could do to create a legitimate, legitimate uh, sort of alias. So like I said, for all of those reasons, I think that Nicholas Hilliard was one of his very first aliases. And like I said, the signatures were too obvious. Later on, he, he learned how to become a little more subtle, and it's taken me a longer time to kind of figure out who they all are, but I have tracked down a few of them. So that's the stuff I've been working on, and um, I have all of this and more in my book. So. Um, one of the things that uh, is my theory, and again, at this point, this is this part is speculation. Um, I believe that all of these aliases, I, I think that Anthony, knowing Bacon's true heritage, uh, Francis's true heritage, I think that the two of them sat down together in um, Gray's Inn all those years ago and created a strategic plan, a very long-term goal that would eventually get Sir Francis Bacon the nation that he always wanted to rule. And um, 
I, I'm happy to say that uh, the guy who, uh, I'll tell you this much, he should have been a king and um, everything was taken away from him. And yet uh, this story does have a happy ending. And uh, I go into that in my book. So hope you enjoyed just this quick little tidbit. Uh, like I said, I, I just did the basic surface of it, uh, but there is more there and it is uh, a little more deeper than that. So I think we can uh, hand things over to Chris now, John, and I can sit back and enjoy his show because I, I, I'm very familiar with his work and he has some pretty, well, not pretty, very cool stuff to show us. So. All righty, Jake. Oh my hey, lordy, hey, lordy, hey. oh my lordy, forty. We had a we had a lot of questions, so I guess we'll go over some questions for Jake, and then we'll get into Chris. Okay. Yeah, please do because, like I said, I was kind of on roll and watching everyone's questions fly by. So I only can scroll back on my YouTube side. Facebook, I'm lost on Facebook. Forget it. I don't know where anybody is and where those are. I can help with that, I think. <clears throat> okay. I think it was Tom Burns had a couple of. Yeah, he did. He said. Um... Oh, good. Tom has always great questions. Yeah, he's fantastic. I got one that says, does anyone know if Bacon assumed all these aliases in the same countries or were they each unique to a specific area? Wow, what a great question. Um, let's put it this way. Uh, I have identified um, five different aliases in five different countries. I, I think that um, he may have traveled from one country uh, as uh, Tiberio Tonelli into Germany. And then when he was there, uh, he became Theophilus uh, uh, Schweigart. Uh, so they're, I, they're so interconnected. The other thing that um, he and Anthony did, I've discovered, is they would have one alias write letters to another alias. And what that does is it lends credibility to both of them. So um, it's such a great question. Uh, I, I see evidence of both of those um, uh, possibilities, but like I said, great question. And, and hopefully more, more answers will come, but that's the best I can do at this point. Okay. We got another question here. Uh, um, it says, uh, who was he writing these messages to and how would they know how to decipher them? Oh, great question. Um, well, let's put it this way. One of the messages of the plaque states, we hold our hand in this position to honor bees. And it was the shape of an M. Now, you can go through Renaissance portraits, and you will see Sir Francis Drake having that pose. Uh, you, you see other people doing it. You see Bacon in one portrait doing it. Uh, I think they were the Rosicrucians. Brothers of the Rosy Cross, they knew how to do this. Uh, and also, you have to remember that uh, these people were all kind of in the same spy network. I think that's what they were. And by putting this in a painting, for example, in, in the Nicholas Hilliard example, mm -hmm. 
this was just simply a message to other people who were in the know of, hey, this is me. If you need me, this is one of my identities you can pull in. Uh, I can do a portrait of your monarch and we can share secrets, etc. So it's just one method of communication. And what, the other thing that we forget as moderns is this idea that ciphers back then, um, everyone who was literate used them. Information was very, very powerful. And it, people were constantly trying to read each other's letters, each other's messages. And so different groups would have their own um, sort of style of, of, of ciphers that they would use. And I always use the same example to illustrate this, uh, of how important they were. Um, when Francis Walsingham in, uh, basically uh, confiscated a letter from Mary, Queen of Scots, to some conspirators, they were planning on taking down Elizabeth and, and placing Mary of Queen, Queen of Scots on the English throne. Okay, this was treason. And so they intercepted that letter. Sir Francis Walsingham was uh, Elizabeth's best uh, cipher expert, decoded it, had the evidence and proof he needed to convict her of treason. And that's what ended up getting Mary Queen of Scots beheaded as one of the very first monarchs uh, to actually have that happen. So oh. that's how important the ciphers were. Right. Now, do you have a picture of your book that you can bring up? Oh, yeah. Uh, it's at the end of uh, Chris's okay. presentation. All righty. I put my right. shameless plug at the end. Okay. All righty. And um, now we'll get into uh, Chris's side. And then if you want to po poise like about halfway, maybe we can get the questions like through half your presentation because I'm losing questions. I'm... I don't know why I'm losing them, but I'm pretty sure I got them all for Jake as I scroll back. Yeah, I'm scrolling through right now. Yeah, because once we get going, it's just hard to stop and um, pinpoint what they asked. You know, I mean, I'm pretty sure you guys will come back on the live shows uh, um, video repeat, and you can answer some of the questions for the members. I thank you so much. Oh, yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Because now it's like uh, going by so fast, it's kind of hard. We try to pick some of them out. I, I thank you, members. Uh, I want to thank Chris Donna for being here. I want to thank Jake Roberts for being here. I want to thank everybody on the Quest Facebook side. I want to thank everybody on the YouTube side. we got a great night going right now. I hope everybody's enjoying themselves. Now we'll get on... Uh, Chris, Chris's uh, presentation. So me and Jake will disappear. And here we go. Ready, Chris? Yeah, I'm ready. Okay, here we go. All right. Well, thank you. Thanks, John and Jake. Jake for running this slide, and I'll just tell you the next one when I'm done talking. But And thanks for everybody coming out and watching. I appreciate it. Um, I have been doing some work on Nolan's Cross, and I came across some interesting uh, numbers in the cross, and it made me realize that most likely that it was Francis Bacon who designed it. 
uh, and I'll tell you why as we get going here. But uh, no disrespect to Fred Nolan and, and Tom Nolan, but I kind of renamed it Bacon's Cross because I think he was the original designer of uh, Nolan's Cross. So uh, go ahead and uh, click the next one, Jake. Uh, by the way, uh, Aaron Helton is in the in the uh, uh, chat. So she designed this great LIDAR, very high tech, advanced uh, LIDAR for everybody. And uh, she was nice enough to share it with some of us. And I'm using that tonight. And you can see how clear and nice it is. Uh, so I want to thank Aaron Helton for sharing that with us to use as researchers to help us. Um, this is a picture of Nolan's Cross. I've got some bearings there uh, for those who don't know. Uh, you can see the cones labeled. Cone A is at the top. Cone B is at the bottom uh, where that long blue trench is. Um, cone C on Nolan's Beach is cone C up there. Then you have D and E um, down below here where the 240 is. Now, the stem of the cross going to the northeast is 60 degrees. In the opposite direction, uh, you have two, 240. That's the bottom of the stem going to the southwest. Uh, from Cone B heading out into Jerdy's Cove, that is 330 degrees for the arm. And then heading back towards the southern part of the island down near uh, the corner of the swamp, uh, the southeast corner, it's 150 degrees. So it makes a perfect cross. Um, so uh, those are the numbers that are heading in each direction between the cones, and there are five cones. Go ahead, Jake. And there they are right there for you to see. Um, so from top to bottom and from uh, the arms, those are the degree bearings that uh, for Nolan's Cross. Now, Jacob has talked about some of Bacon's numbers, but um, for me tonight, I'm just going to talk about a simple cipher, which uses the Elizabethan alphabet time. Um, it only has 24 characters, unlike ours today that has 26. They used I and J together as just a capital I. So a capital J would look just like a capital I. And for U and V, they just wrote a capital V. So that would stand for a V and a U uh, at that time. So there's 24 characters, uh, A being one and so forth, counting to Z as being 24. Go ahead, Jake. Now, at this time, many of these men including Francis Bacon, they were big into uh, finding the sum of their names. And it was very easy for them to hide code, hide messages in their writings by having a certain word uh, with their name, uh, not their name, but with their number. So Francis, using the simple cipher above, uh, would be the number 67. And then Bacon, using the simple cipher, is, is number 33. And we see that a lot, and he used that a lot. So you could have another uh, another word, possibly, in 
as a mistake, like Jake said, in a in a strange area in the in the writing or something that has the same number as 67 or 33. Okay. Um, in fact, the Fama has a very strange word called Gaza, G-A-Z-A. I didn't put this in my presentation, but it has the number 33. I mean, so it was their uh, their um, way of expressing that might be an important word in the Fama for Tanakanis. So um, in the Rosicrucian document. So, you know, he, they use this and for today, I just want to say that Francis Bacon's numbers, or Francis is 67, and Bacon is 33, and together they add up to 100. And I'd also like to point out too, he does use his birthday of January 22nd. Um, that'd be 122, and those numbers. So um, they pop up as 122 sometimes uh, in in the writing. So, anyways, we're just going to stick with 67. 33 and 122 for tonight. And I want to show you some aspects of the cross and why I think this is centered around Francis Bacon. Go ahead, Jake. Okay, so uh, the first one I found that made me look at this a little bit closer and suspect that Francis Bacon was part of this is that from cone E to cone C directly is actually 33 degrees. This started it all. This is the first one I, I noticed. Um, it is exactly 33 degrees. Thank you to Erin um, uh, for her LIDAR. It makes it very precise. And um, from cone E to cone C is exactly 33 degrees. So that would be bacon. So that is only one. So you can imagine um, all these different um, angles and lines and distances between the cones. It's amazing, but uh, they all have certain numbers that relate to Francis Bacon. Go ahead, Jake. Now, this one right here is quite interesting. Now, in gematria or num numerology at the time, zero is no, so that can be eliminated. Um, zero has no value. So they could eliminate the zero in numbers and still have the same meaning. So in this case, I told you from cone E to cone A that it was 60 degrees. And from cone B to cone C, heading out to Jury's Cove is 330 degrees. Well, in a way, that spells Francis Bacon because in that simple cipher in that Elizabethan alphabet, the sixth letter is F. And then Bacon is 33. So in a way, it's a signature saying F. Bacon, Francis Bacon. Okay, Jake. Furthermore, from the angle from the stem from cone A to cone C is exactly 67 degrees. This is the number for Francis, 67. So, in other words, using the stem, you can see the green going down the stem of the cross, and then the angle from cone A to cone C, that creates a 67-degree angle perfectly, right on from cone A down. Again, so from cone A to cone B, 
it is also 67 degrees. Now this would have to be very precise. Um, and the chances of this happening are pretty, pretty slim uh, as a coincidence, as just a luck of the draw. It would have to be precisely um, uh, drawn out and uh, created using these numbers. It would take an astronomer, it would take an engineer, it would take several workers to move things in spots. Um, it would take some highly intelligent people on the island to move these boulders in certain spots, special locations to make these alignments. Here's some astronomy that I've looked at. Now this is looking uh, to the south. Um, this is looking from cone A all the way down the stem 240 degrees through cone D, cone E, on Francis Bacon's birthday. I mean, I'm sorry, Frank, the day, uh, January 22nd. It's not the date that's correct. Um, the reason why I chose uh, 1570 is because there was a calendar change. Now, uh, that was 1582. Anytime before 1582, um, it, the astronomy changes a little bit till after. The Julian calendar was used before that time. And what happened was in 1582, uh, Pope Gregory uh, decided to make a new calendar. And he did this because Easter was falling so far out of alignment with the calendar that he had to do something. At that time, in fact, the solstices um, for the winter and summer solstice were so far out of range that it was not even close to what it is today. And in fact, we just had um, our spring solstice or spring equinox, but today we know that the summer solstice is June 21st. Well, back then, before the calendar change, it had fallen so far out of its normal date that it was actually June 12th or June 11th. So you can see why the Pope was trying to regulate the calendar uh, from that time. And actually his calendar is not perfect either. Uh, several years into the future, we're gonna have to change our calendar again too. So um, it's just a calendar thing. So I use this because I wanted to show you what uh, January 22nd, the sun looks like setting down the stem of the cross. I think this, the cross was set up on a stem to highlight his, his birth date of January 22nd. But as you can see, using the old calendar, it really doesn't fit. Uh, it, it's maybe like maybe five degrees above the horizon. Um, and it doesn't really set too close to the end of that red line. So go ahead and hit the next one, Jake. Now, this is using the newest calendar, which is the Gregorian calendar that we use today. I have a date of 1670, which is well after the 1582 date. As you can see, the January 22nd is, falls very, very closely to the end of that uh, red line. Now, it's hard to say exactly what they were looking for, whether if it's a true setting sun, uh, an orange, just an orange sky, or were they looking to have that sun just two degrees 
above the horizon, looking down it, so the full sun would be uh, above the horizon. So it's hard to tell, but it's only two degrees off. And in this sense, um, the sun is passing that uh, the stem of the cross. It's not before it, but it is very close. So I think I came to the conclusion that whoever created no one's cross, or if it was bacon, it would have to be after 1582 using the newest calendar, Gregorian calendar. Now, the problem is Britain, being a Protestant country, they did not switch their calendar after. They did not switch it until 1756 uh, when Britain changed over to the Gregorian calendar. It was only the Catholic countries that did it because Pope Gregory being the Pope. So that would be France. France would have been one of those countries that did switch to the new calendar. So this might be a connection, a French connection with Bacon. This is really important that maybe it was the French that were doing the work for Bacon in creating this cross for him. Uh, go ahead, Jake. Now, you're going to see a couple dates. I did a whole uh, setting and rising sun for one year at the island, and this is part of that table. Um, you can see the actual bearing, the sun rises, sun sets, what time. But there are some strange dates that have opposites. Now, throughout the year, the sun really doesn't cover the whole horizon. It only covers a certain degree. Now, um, and that is between the summer solstice and the winter solstice each year. And the sun goes back and forth uh, twice to each, each point in between. So you have the sun going from the summer solstice to the winter solstice, and then you have it going back uh, for those next six months. So um, it hits each bearing I guess on the horizon twice. So um, the opposites of those are quite interesting that I've found. Uh, I learned a lot by doing it. One of those is January 22nd. Now you're gonna see over to the left there, you're gonna see a lot of number ones and twos in those uh, three dates. You see January 19th, but you see January 20th, January 21st, and you see January 22nd with ones and twos. Now you look to the right, on the opposite time of the year, in the fall, the sun would set very close to that stem of the cross, where you're gonna see November 22nd, November 21st, and November 20th. Again, a loss of ones and twos. So that could be uh, a reason for um, the two times having ones and twos that would highlight that January 22nd date. So I would like to highlight that November 22nd, 11 and 22. Now those two numbers are significant and I can't really get into it tonight, but they are bacon related 11 and 22 um, through math. And it's, it's really quite interesting, but I can't really get into it tonight. But just so you know, on the next slide, 
that the sun sets very closely, even closer than January 22nd, it sets very closely down the stem of that cross. So 1122, November 22nd, it seems like the date that he is highlighting down the stem. So it's kind of weird that January 22nd and November 22nd both come very close to setting at the end of that line. Now, like I said, the January 20 or the November 22nd sun is very close. I mean, it is like two degrees or less above the horizon. It would have been a straight shot and it would have been beautiful to see if that was his intent. So that could be a reason why the stem of the cross is 240 degrees on the island. Oh, and here's Jake's, uh, here's Jake's plug for his book. You want to come back, Jake, and you want to talk about this? I forgot that was. I forgot too. <laughs> don't worry, guys. I got it. So, yeah. I, don't worry, guys. It's like tech tic-tac-toe over here. I got you covered. Oh, my God. You, you've got it under control. <laughs> yeah. John, you're the master. Oh, yeah, I'm the master. Yeah. Okay, go ahead, Jake. <laughs> well, first, first, I want to do the, um, the Brady Bunch thing and look up at Chris. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm pointing down to you guys over here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Only a, only a nerd like me could actually spend this much time looking at Shakespeare's plaque. <laughs> All right, now so easy, easy. here's the shameless plug. Uh, John, you had asked me uh, earlier uh, if all goes well and the uh, creeks don't rise, uh, it's going to be available on Monday, March 22nd, uh, 3.22. <clears throat> and the title is The Holy Trinity Deception. As you said earlier, the subtitle is The Hidden Autobiography of Sir Francis Bacon. Uh, I want to also encourage people to join my Facebook group, Ghosts of Bacon. You can find us there. Just do a search and it'll come up. And the, the last thing is uh, this also contains a lot of my uh, Oak Island research. Uh, basically, it overlaps because I found a lot of information about Oak Islandness in the plaque. So it's there. Very, very good. It'll be available on Amazon. Okay, uh, Chris. You can also go to my website at ghostsofbacon.com. Yeah, I tried to go to one of your sites and I couldn't get it to load for some reason. Weird. Yeah, maybe just me. Uh, Chris, is your presentation Probably all done? Probably a setting I did. I am all done for tonight, John. You know I'll be back. Right, okay, let me see here. Get us three on here. Let me see... Uh, Tammy threw me some questions, and here we go. I've got a question for you, Chris. Should we be looking for cobblestone from the cross 10-ton boulders to the swamp? Um, because I'm 
scratching my head, if Francis Bacon had this Nolan's cross, or you call it Bacon's cross, constructed, yeah. I'm going, okay, my engineer and mine, they're 10-ton boulders. Sure. Maybe some, that one was found on the beach, but maybe, could it be, they were in the swamp area, and like Tom Burns said also, that they have to make these paved areas to carry these 10-ton boulders out of the swamp, because that's where they were for some reason, and use the oxen and uh, wooden skitters to put these in place. I learned something new every night. What do you got to say to that, Chris? Well, there is one theory out there that, yeah, I, they would need some oxen. They would need some manpower to move those around. But um, one theory that I had, uh, someone told me, it's kind of cool, that mm -hmm. they would have maybe dug trenches, done it in the wintertime, and they would have slid those on ice. Fan so, oh, my God. How do you guys come up with this stuff? I says, oh, I don't even... <laughs> I don't even think of these things. I mean, you know, and I try, but these are unbelievable answers. Well, it was it was colder. We had little mini ice age back then, so um, yeah. you know, maybe they used that ice to uh, to do that. That that was one theory that someone told me, and um, yeah, it kind of makes sense if that's what you're going to do. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to echo that. And yeah, it's a lot of digging, but I, I guess it would work. Well, when you consider the Knights Templar had technology where they could actually cut through stone, mm -hmm. cutting through frozen ground seems like a pretty easy deal. And the, yeah. the, the elevation from the swamp to Bacon's Cross, I think that's the high area going to the low area, if I'm not correct. Yeah, I'm trying to is, think. Uh, cone A is a little bit higher than Cone E, I think. Yeah, it kind of goes mm -hmm. goes down a little bit, but there is a dip, the swamp in the middle there. Yeah. Right. So um, I don't know. You know, that's a good engineering question. Uh, you know, I I know that the guys on the island would have trouble moving those today with the machinery they have. So right. You know, I don't know. How do they build the Egyptian pyramids, uh, the Great Pyramid? I don't know, but some yep. roadblocks are a lot bigger. So um we 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 got uh, David Clore on the YouTube side. He says, are they saying that the island is or was Sir Bacon's Island? Uh, well, <laughs> if, if he made this cross, I would say that he, he pretty much had claim to it. We got I, I wish I could say more. Um, but <laughs> you gotta oh, I would say that <laughs> island was definitely a part of Bacon's domain. Right. Absolutely. We got another user said, Chris, did you decipher a year when Bacon created the cross? We had one publisher in here, Gitan. And I can't remember the year, but I think he said the cross was made in 1557. Hmm. That would have been, well, Bacon wasn't born yet then, so I don't know how that would have worked well, out. If that I theory mean, doesn't believe that Bacon had anything to do with it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It would, it would be the, you know, mid-1600s right. that would have been created. Okay. I think that, uh, Chris, your alignment was, you know, your dating of it was probably pretty accurate in terms of when it was made. Yeah. I, that's I, my opinion. I, I was also going to point out that um, you pointed out that it was two degrees above the horizon. Mm -hmm. And 
how many times have we encountered bees? Yeah, and there you go. Yeah, <laughs> two and five. There is kind of, a, it's a neat little number thing between the old calendar, the new calendar. Uh, with the old calendar, it's five degrees. With the new calendar, it's two degrees, right. five, two, you know. And you get and that two, five again um, that we've been working on. There's the 25. So, yeah. In, yeah, in these, yeah, it, in, it, it's strange. And my members are fantastic. And as Tom Burns says, what about the ox shoes? And they did find winter ox shoes. Now, you don't plant in the winter. As far as I know, up here where I'm freezing, yeah. you don't, an oxen <laughs> we are too. Or, or an ox, I mean, they say they have some kind of ice and not slipping and stuff. But what is an ox doing in the winter as far as farming? I say nothing. I say they're used for hauling. Correct. My own yeah, personal. Could have been opinion. lumber. Could have been anything. You know. Yeah. It's hard to hard to say, but they were British oxes. So right. that that tells me that that could have been from the 1700s when uh, there was a bunch of uh, lumber being hauled off of the island. Yeah. So. But uh, we got sense. we got another user wondering if the fleeing Templars from France now Freemasons, kept the original calendar as part of their coding methods. Hmm. It's an interesting thought. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I, I would like to pin the Templars to the island for sure. That would be amazing if they would find something. But I don't know. That would be really early, too. I mean, we're talking, you know, 14th century. 1300. Yeah, 14th century for that. You time. know, there's also the Rosicrucians. I, I believe that Bacon had tapped into the Templar tradition and their teachings and mm -hmm. uh, their knowledge and kept it going through the Freemasons. Yeah. Yep. We had, uh, guys, we had questions, uh, general questions on the map, but I just want to tell my members for those answers, we're going to have the professional map decipher. Aaron Helton on uh, April, April 3rd, okay? If you guys want to know every mark, every scrape, every boulder, <laughs> we're, we're going to ask the professional herself and get the straight answer from her. What do you think, guys? Uh, prepare I, to have I your mind blown. Great idea. <laughs> yeah. And then Michelle says maybe that's why they can explain the fire next to the pave areas. True. I mean, they would need some yeah, heat. Keeping I mean, warm. I, I, right. Yeah, it, it was cold. It would be cold, so but, why not? What I would find, if they use that method, which makes sense to me, you would find not tons of coal, but a lot of charcoal if you're burning and melting ice and you can follow the, the charcoal path to an area. Or if sure. it's just charcoal in one area, well, they maybe they burned old trees or something there at the time or whatever they had to clear. No, I agree. It, it, it should be a lot of it around. Yep. And I don't see a lot of it as far as a Not lot, yet. you know? Not yet. Oh, Not guys, yet. you guys are driving me crazy. Oh, I swear oh, to God. Eternal. You're driving yeah. me nuts. Daniel Spino, who's my history buff. For sure. The, the stuff that he comes up with, I mean, he gets over 25,000 views when he comes up with his historical presentations on my group i thank him so much i got to get him on here i asked him before and he's oh, wondering 
And, and he's wondering, do you believe mining was going on the island uh, as part of, I think they were mining blue clay because that's a heavy substance out of the eye. Mm-hmm. And if you're hauling heavy material, you need a heavy road. You don't need a road like that to bury his treasure. You don't need a road like that. So that's why my theory was, I thought it was a foundation for a wharf to go over a swampy area. But then if they made this area out of cobblestones and they did bury a treasure, they knew the tide would cover their tracks and take all the artifacts away and bury the cobblestone roadway. So it looks like nobody was there, no road, no nothing, because the Uh tide came in, it covered it with muck. Nobody knows nothing. You know what I mean, guys? No, I, I I can understand that for sure. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree that it would, I, I think probably the biggest resource they had there was blue clay. Right. Yep. That's unbelievable. Oh, let's see. Here go. Yep, it should be very interesting when she comes on. Jake and Chris are professionals in my book all day long. <laughs> Thanks, Tammy. I didn't make any dirty jokes this time around. Right. <laughs> Right. But I was thinking this, like I said, I went to school for civil engineering, the guys know, and I did a lot of surveying and stuff. So I'm trying to piece these things together. So, okay, I'm getting hit with dates left and right. Okay. That's fine and dandy. Um, great. But if you go to the expense of doing this road, you need a lot of manpower. And also if you want to cover your tracks, like I say, it's always clean there. How much are they finding with all these people there? Not much. You find a couple of artifacts to try to date it, but not much. Well, yeah, you mentioned that um, on the group the other day, John, and I think you made an excellent point. With the amount of traffic there had to be just for the structure of the roadway, let alone Nolan's Cross, uh, all of the other things they found at Smith's Cove, it was picked pretty clean. So, I mean, and that's not even the areas that – have been searched, you know? So it seems to me that it was scrubbed in a way. Right. Well, they're, because they're still finding things though. So, I mean, they're still finding them. So true. And I'm always told, well, John, they reused everything. If they broke a pickaxe, they use half of it or they would rebuild it or melt it down to make new tools. But I'm still shocked of the lack of artifacts with the amount of 225 years of people on that island, mm-hmm. I'm still in shock. We should find a mess like the Dunfield dig with all the wood and junk in there on the whole island, on the certain areas that are pinpointed on when you guys put the X on. That's all I'm seeing is rocks, stones, parts of a stove, a belly stove, one mm-hmm. ring bolt, you know what I mean? I, one ring bolt, we should find a hundred ring bolts if it rotted out in a wooden wharf part of the swamp as they came in when there was no road in the front. So they wouldn't not do that because the top of the wharf would have rotted away. Yeah. You're not going to unbolt. Yeah. You know them ring bolts that Carmen showed, that big ring bolt? And he says it's dated at 1640. Yeah. There's not one in there. They had to be I don't know, 50 of them or something in there. Now, you're going to pull all those out of the wharf before the wharf rotted 
and clean that yeah, up. No, I mean, we can only guess on what we see. You know right. what I mean? I mean, the show doesn't show everything that Gary hits with his metal detector. I can guarantee <laughs> they don't show that everything. around Samuel Ball's foundation, there was probably thousands of nails that Gary hit with that metal detector. So, I mean, we're only seeing the highlights of what Gary hits. So, um, he hits maybe, uh, you know, hundreds of things before he hits a, something really good. So, and, th and then they show us the lip to, lipstick tube. Yeah. <laughs> yeah well, thousand, I rather too. have saw, hey, Chris, I rather have saw a nail than a <laughs> lipstick tube. Okay. Yeah, piece well, of it just goes to show you, I mean, you never know what you're going to find. I mean, mm. for that to pop up, you know, I mean, the when the condition was in, it could have been anything, really, you know, and it, it, it's weird until you really investigate it, and then it pops up to be a lipstick, too. What, who thought, you know? Unbelievable. All right, guys, you guys did a great job. I'm going to put up some uh, photos of Tuesday's show, if you want to stay with me. Sure. And this is... Uh, how we do the updates here i hope everybody can see them okay all righty this is a picture of the uh eye of the swamp i'm getting a lot of questions about the eye of the swamp and i'm telling them there's a spring fed area uh right there that i was told it's a spring that's why nothing grows there but yet that's where those big boulders were being dug out by billy and um that's why the area nothing grows on So that's the uh, eye of the swamp that was from 2020. This is not current print, uh, pictures. This is from uh, uh, the season in 2020. Yeah, those cork trees were found in that area too, right? Right. Now, next week, I got a pre-show. I'll see all you guys uh 7 o'clock this Tuesday. Everybody's getting hyped up that they found a cannonball or a signal cannon or some kind of uh, small caliber cannonball and then somebody says they're like uh mining balls made out of steel and cast iron so that drew up a lot of questions for this tuesday night on the uh what they found <clears throat> as far as a cannonball so i hope we get some answers on that then around the swamp of course rick's got to find the hole on the side of the swamp there and uh, is there treasure in there could there be treasure in there? Of course, Rick has to say, of course. I hope so. Anything. You know what I mean, guys? Find anything. Let's yeah. go here. Maybe it's a honey badger. Maybe it's a honey badger. <laughs> the rabbit hole for sure. But uh, I'm, I'm telling my members <laughs> also, you know, you got to make light of some things because we're glad we even had a season eight this year. Oh, for sure. And uh, the border I think still it, isn't open. Yeah. And yeah. it's going to be great. So I give them a break this year, but I'm not giving them a break next year. <laughs> and this is part of a cannon in Halifax that goes off at noon. And there's some bracing that Gary found. It looks similar to the bracing on the bottom of this cannon. What it's doing on Oak Island, the bracing, they say it's a cannon. But who knows what the bracing's for? Carmen's good, but uh, I gotta go by his word. But sometimes he's got me scratching my head. 
Now, if they do find a cannon on the island, they should be able to be traced, uh, whether it be British, French, right. Portuguese, whatever. Exactly. So hopefully, if they do find a cannon, they'll, they should be able to trace it. Right. I'm still wondering. I'm still wondering about Tony Sampson's uh, metal hits that he got out in the bay. Oh yeah, that's right. That's part. Yeah. I would think a cannon would be out in a shipwreck or something out in the bay. You know, not in the swamp. But what do I know now? I'm all confused. There's a supposed shipwreck out there. So. Right. Right. And Laird said that's all they take is a couple of weeks to get a provincial underwater archaeological dig. So they got the means and the ways. Uh, I don't know if they got the equipment, but they can get under there very quickly. So maybe they did it towards the end of last season. We'll find out in season nine. Um, so there's a lot of things that still spike my interest there, guys. There's plenty to dig into, for sure. And there are some of these uh, forged steel grinding things that they use in mining you know people think they just had a big factory on oak island it was a secret military installation to fix ships to uh do repairs so we got to satisfy that end so i found these i forgot who the member was but i thank him so much just to put everything out there you know what i mean guys yeah absolutely got to play every angle now this I start stared at this picture and I'm going, it's like just stays in the middle of nowhere. I mean, it doesn't go anywhere. It's maybe 85 to a hundred feet away from the small paved area. It's just sitting there. So I can't wait till they get into this big area, 80 feet wide by 170 feet long. And it looks like it goes up to the eye of the swamp too, right? Is that mm -hmm. that's where that is? So yeah, it's so, interesting. They needed solid ground to do something. Yeah, and they needed a heavy-duty support system to lift what that is heavy in the clay mine, the blue clay. Yep. To either bring it and do the walls <laughs> in the money pit, or to whatever the heck else they were doing. Yeah, makes sense. So, yeah, the rocks lining that eye of the swamp has really baffled me. You know, why would they need that wall secured? For a spring. Exactly. There, there yeah, has to be some kind something. of structure. Yeah, a structure? Was it a well? Yeah, that's. I was told there's a spring, but I'm not sure. So they would have that to go get fresh water. Now, could they have all this information here to get a fresh water supply? Use barrels to put fresh water on a ship and take it away. Use barrels to to uh, put spring water in uh, to go maybe to Luxembourg or on a ship. I don't know, but I know there's a spring there and, and platforms there to carry whatever material they were doing. But this is not for treasure in my book. Yeah, it could have been done by the French. That, uh, I mean, Mahone Bay is... A beautiful bay. I mean, fresh water, and it could have been a stopping ground for for ships to get fresh water before heading back home. Yeah. And then Tom Burns says, "The more they dig, the more amazing history that gets uncovered." Yep. Yep. Fact. And we got here. What do we got here? Oh, 
I wanted to show you this picture. You know, I talked to uh, Joan McGinnis. She's a friend of mine and stuff like that. People think the houses on Oak Island were small little shacks or like small little tool sheds. You know whose house this is? Huh. Is that Samuel Balls? This is David McGinnis's house. Oh, cool. On the mainland. No, I'm not sure. No, this is on Oak Island. It is. Hmm. The, really? The reason why I put this up, Jake and Chris, because you know my mind, my mind is crazy now in season eight. The reason why I know, I had the same question, Chris. Well, this is on the mainland, McGinnis's house. Now think back. When Laird Niven first had a surface archaeological dig permit, I took this screenshot off his pad when he was digging at the foundation. Hmm. Yeah, it seemed like an awful big house. I don't think that's the same foundation. Wow. Unless it was a smaller, like, I would have, sort of I would have imagined this his house being in Chester. You know, I'm thinking of like a, a house that he, they lived in Chester or something like that, not on the island. Boy, that looks like a beautiful house. Yeah. Um, it's big, though. It's, yeah, but I'm saying it was on his clipboard. He, they have a bunch of pictures of David McGinnis's house. Not David, um... Daniel. Daniel McGinnis's uh, house. Mm -hmm. And when he was digging on the foundation, he says, well, we're over here because here's the picture of his house. This house was on Oak Island. Wow. Wow. I didn't know that. So if you look back in in the beginning of the videos, and I'll post it some more because I thought it was a known thing, but it sort of shocked me that people were saying, well, little houses. No, this was his house on Oak Island. Wow. So you guys didn't know that? I did not know that. No idea. I didn't know it was a house that big. Right. At that time period. Right. I mean, I I'll figure it was a trick question. That's why I said it. It'd be the biggest house on the island. I mean, yeah. Dan's house isn't that big. I mean, Dave's might be a little bit bigger, but this looks pretty big. Yep. Well, I'll put more facts on the group later on. And I'll try to get a picture of him with the clipboard while he's going, because he's saying, well, this is the foundation here and there. And I said, okay. So I wanted to post that up because, you know, I like the the strange and people that don't find anything, and I find something. Or, you know, I got it wrong, but I don't think so. It's interesting. And here I just wanted to show you. I was talking to Dr. Spooner. And also talking to Steve Guptill, the surveyor there. Fred Nolan was specific with detail on his plots with his maps. The size of his maps are humongous. And here is Charles and Rick laying them out on the floor to see what's going on. I feel better now because when you first put that up, I thought they were yoga mats. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But, uh, as people playing Twister, no, (laughs) no, no circles. (laughs) But also when people ask me in chat and 300 people PM me, if 
we see what's on the maps ourselves. Steve has seen what's on every map that's available to him from the year 1929 or 1762 when they surveyed the maps to these maps of Fred Nolan. And then I keep on asking him questions. Well, why is it taking him so long to find these things out? Even now we find a boulder with a cutoff ring bolt that Tom Nolan remembers seeing before his father, Fred, cut the ring off. Now, are they just finding this now in 2020? No. No. I was just bringing it to highlight, um, you know, revisiting, trying to go back to some of these old finds and just yep. see if there's a difference. I mean, think about Jake and I uh, and our research that we've done. You know, I can think back years ago, things I found. I have to go back and say, now that I know more, yep. it does yeah. mean something, you know? So um, yeah. it's the same thing, you know? Old old finds um, might bring new light to new research if if uh, you, you go and check them well, out again. Also, you're, that's so true that you tend to forget what you found, but um, you're also talking about Fred Nolan, and you had just said, John, how he cut the ring off the bolt. Um, he was known to remove stones with symbols on them. Right, he put them in his museum. Keeping after he recorded where they were on his maps. So right. whether or not it's easy for any of us to look at his maps and be able to understand them, or if he changed how he recorded things uh, because he was a good treasure hunter. Right. What they do is they, they uh, gather information, keep it to themselves. Uh, it's one of the rules of treasure hunting that if you do find something, you keep it to yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if the treasure has been found, people say, well, how come we haven't heard about it? Well, there you go. And so if he were to, well, sort of change how he would record things on his map in a way that he would understand, but say the average surveyor such as yourself um, would look at it and think it means something different. Uh, treasure hunters do that. But okay. and, and I'm not, I'm not saying anything, taking anything away from uh, Fred Nolan, uh, but uh, he was. That was one of his known uh, modes of operation. Right, but you realize, Jake, as a surveyor as I was, you have to get presented a professional license to be a surveyor. Number one, your maps and your plots. Once you put your stamp on the bottom and sign it, that's law. That stuff can sure. be brought to court. That stuff can be in a legal binding area. So Correct, he, but don't forget, John. They were his private maps. He wasn't filing yeah. them anywhere. He well, was he hired. Was hired to do those maps. Yeah. He was hired yeah. to do those they were, maps. They were, they were private maps. Oh, oh, early on, yes. He did a map the island. For, early on, yes. For but when he was doing it for himself, yeah, they were his maps. So the no, ones he was that. hired for, okay, I got you. He had his own private yeah. stash. Yeah. Two different sets. No. I got you. Why didn't I think of that? Very good, Jake. That's why I got you guys here to back me up. <laughs> <laughs> Here's a picture of the blue clay they found on the side of the swamp that they found also in the uh, 
Yeah, that is interesting stuff. The, for sure. the side That's of the swamp, and it looks the same that they found in the eye of the swamp. This is on the side of the swamp. Yeah. Hmm. And there's a piece of metal they found on the side of the swamp. Uh, Gary said it was some kind of mining, digging, whatever object. We'll find out about that next Tuesday also. We'll go by the pictures here. I guess they're at the table. They're still digging at the money pit, the drill. There's Terry at the drill site. They're finding wood at the 88-foot level. We were discussing, you know, how Dunfield missed this with the slope of the dig. If they're yeah, finding it was a, very, it's like cone shaped at the bottom, and it was very narrow at the bottom. So yeah. he missed a lot of stuff. Not here. Otherwise, the thing would have caved in if it's real. Yeah. Right. And then, guys, I got a question for you. If the money pit was only 13 foot around, the yep. original money pit diameter, and it went down 90 feet to the stone, why didn't it collapse? It was pretty hard. For, I mean, the pickaxe marks were still in the side of that 13-foot uh, diameter circle. So right. um, the ground was pretty hard from what I, the, the, the reports at the time. So mm -hmm. um, it was pretty solid. But, you know, maybe if they put fire in it, maybe like a fire kiln-like type deal where if you heat it up the sides, maybe with the clay, it would just seal it. I Sounds don't know. good. Sounds I was good. Thinking about that. Sounds good. And here to drill in the BC4 test hole. There's also the possibility the ground was frozen. Go ahead. Yeah. No, that's, you know, it, yeah. if the ground was frozen, and they they did it yeah. in the winter, and if they used slave labor and they weren't caring about anyone's comfort. Mm -hmm. Right, but the ground don't freeze past four feet, does it? Uh, true. If you yeah. leave it exposed in stages. Yeah. And then you just crib up what you need. I don't know. That's just sounds a thought. Good. Yep, sounds yeah. good. Sounds good. And here's the wood they're pulling up from uh, that 90-foot mark. And I got a question for you That's guys. You see this piece of wood, right? At the 88-foot mark, right? Yep. You got mm -hmm. that? And here it goes Johnny's brain again. <laughs> what? Why Why in these sausage casings that they call, and they're bringing up these samples, is it not soaking wet because of the flood tunnel? That means the flood tunnel did not hit this wood yet. Why is it coming up encased and not a, just a big mud slop? Go ahead. Uh, it, it is kind of wet, but, um, you know, it's probably over the years that those tunnels have been filled in, you know, with clay and whatever else is down there. So I can't so imagine collapse. any of those tunnels open. So. Right. But also, my question is, when they drill down, there's a lot of water being pressured right. down in. And so when we, everything they bring up tends to look a little damp or wet, but that does look drier than it would look if it was a flood tunnel. All right. Jenny yeah. says, Chris and Jake, think the wood they're finding might be part of Aaron's tunnel? 
Uh, that's a good question. I mean, Aaron's tunnel would have been northwest, right? Northwest corner. They are heading in that direction. Yep. Um, they're, they're and that was my west. thought that they were following it. Yep. Or trying yeah. to. Yeah. Yep. Could be plausible. It could be. And then, of course, the uh, direction of the path from the swamp to the money pit. And there's the eye of the swamp or where the spring is. Uh -huh. But on the other side of the swamp, don't forget, in 1939, they had telephone poles and a big road going that way. So I'm sort of cautious on the things if they find anything. Even the uh -huh. telephone pole guys didn't leave anything. I can't believe it. I know. I mean, Jake, you got a bunch of guys putting telephone poles in on the whole side of the swamp in 1930s. Nobody dropped cigarette butts. Yeah. And I was I, just going to say the same thing, Chris. <laughs> and again, some no beer tabs, no screwdrivers, yeah. no cups, no glasses, no nothing. Zero. You're telling me the telephone pole workers cleaned up after themselves too? unbelievable you know if if people came repeatedly when as soon as they invented metal detectors right hearing the rumors they would probably pick it clean i don't know how popular that was or anything like that but you know that's one possibility of why there there's so few you know artifacts of human activity right do jake do jake and chris think that the bones found on oak island are linked to what they theorized on what might be on Oak Island. I, I don't see why not. Um, I mean, they kind of threw me the uh, the cultures those bones came from. One was Middle Eastern. I think that was a woman. And uh, the other one was European, yep. I think, with a male. Yep. So, I, I, you know, I, I can speculate. Yep. But, um, yeah, I don't see why not. Um, they have to be. I can't think of any other reason why it would be that deep underground. Yeah, it's yeah, it baffles me. Um, me too. Whether if they were slaves or, um, I, I don't know. When when I saw the Middle Eastern descent, first thing I thought of was um, slaves, and uh, now that I've found I a connection between Bacon and Drake, right. Uh, yeah. I, I, I've been theorizing and playing with the idea that the island was known to Drake and he was the most successful privateer of England. So, mm, yeah. there's that. I hear you. We got a question for Jake. Has the name John D, D-E-E, ever crossed your research? His signature was ironically 007. D was a spy... A crook modifier, ultramarines, and a alcohols link to the Rosicrucians. You know anything yeah. about this John D. Jake? Uh, yeah, uh, he's a mathematician. Actually, that's what he's least known for. Uh, and he was a brilliant mathematician. Uh, what he was known for was more being the court astrologer to Elizabeth, uh, dabbling in magic and trying to commune with angels. Um, and but. I've always theorized, and, and my fellow theorists don't agree with me on this point, but I'll throw it out there anyway, is that I think that he was, 
hiding a lot of his spy efforts under the guise of magic, doing a lot of science under the guise of magic. Uh, his angelic writings uh, sounds to me like a cryptogram mm -hmm. that he's mailing off to fellow agents. Now, he did sign his name as 007, as the original 007, the Queen's spy. Mm -hmm. But the cool thing is, is that he often signed her, signed his letters to her as her eyes. And that's what those O's were. Mm -hmm. And the seven is actually Adaleth, which is the Hebrew letter D, uh -huh. his name. Oh, and my Lord. Seven. I never knew that. Oh, yeah. my, the double O was the eyes. Yep. yep. Oh, my God. And the seven is for D. Yep. Mm -hmm. And John D is yeah. definitely in the plaque as a 007, too. Um, you know, I can't share that on here, but yeah, it, he's on there. He's, like, I, he's, he's in a few of the ciphertext, too. Fantastic. Yeah. As 007. Unbelievable. Now, this is uh, Rick going, walking down the little pathway that they found on the side. And there's Billy in the tractor just digging away, digging away. And there's more of that blue clay that Rick found, but you would think they would put it somewhere on that cobblestone. I can't see how the heck an ox and cart can even go over those cobblestone, if they call it a paved area road, with no visible grooves in the least resistant area on that stone pathway. It boggles my mind. And especially if they were carrying a heavy, heavy load, them wagons would be stuck in them rocks, and them oxen would be having breaking legs and everything else, but that's my own personal opinion. Mm -hmm. A couple it's more. Huh? Well, so here's that's one of the right, of a wooden. Right here's the stakes they're finding uh, on the side. That one was a uh, hundred years older than the other. They call them survey stakes. They could be the end of an old fence post because there was a fence that went all the way around the uh, the swamp so the cows wouldn't go in there and the farm animals. So, but not dated that far back on the older one. The newer ones that they dated, I can see, but I'm not sure on dates when farm animals were on Oak Island. I don't have any previous information on what kind of animals were dropped off there or, or such. There's a picture of the pathway on the left-hand side. This is the same side where the telephone poles were, a little bit off to the left. And they're just following that more narrow path that now they tell us it's not going to the money pit. It's going to the eye of the swamp. That's where the Y is going. And we'll learn more about that this Tuesday. And there's a closer look at the uh, survey stike. But when I used to do survey spikes, I had to cut them, not had to cut them. When we had to get them, they had to be cut on all four sides. Because when I had to drive a spike in, if you have only one or two sides, you can never get that plumb straight. Right. So think uh, about that, members. That has to be cut on all four sides. When the, the transit man says drive it, when he's got you on his transit, if I had something like that, I'd be going out of my mind. That's just the surveyor side on uh, <laughs> that I that I wanted to throw in there. You know what I mean, Chris yeah. and uh, Jake? Yeah, yeah, yeah I totally get it. Uh, 
that's great advice from your experience. I mean, that have done it for sure. So let me see what I got here. And this is where they were saying the road or the pathway is going up towards uh, the swamp. But look at them rocks. I don't know. They call it a pathway. I don't know. Well, the ring bolt that Fred Nolan cut, that was up on their land. Right. That was up near, because I saw the Nolan shed or garage, whatever it is, in the background uh, mm -hmm. during that clip. So they were pretty close up to the center of that cross, I would right. think. So yeah. If they're thinking the road goes up there, I'd be very happy to see. Right, but they're they're saying the road's there. going towards the eye of the swamp. That's but what they said. But it's a Y, though, right? And one goes to the north, and the other one yep. goes to the eye. Yep. And now they're showing us this animation that what they think. Do you imagine the work they had to go into doing this? I mean, just think of the manpower, the work. And they said all these rocks came from the upland area. I don't know. But this is an animation what they think it's it, it's uh, portraying to be. They don't give us a location, which way it's going after the top part. But I thought it was pretty interesting that they showed us this. Man, it's an incredible amount of labor to make that road. I mean, I can't imagine the labor that took place of hauling stones from somewhere, somewhere on the island and laying yep. them down and Daniels. over and over and over and over again. Daniel Spino, yep. Daniel oh. Spino says oxen were first recorded in Acadia in the early 1600s. Yep. And Pam, I don't know how they went over these bumpy rocks. I don't if they got a heavy, especially a heavy, heavy load, mm -hmm. and the oxen are what two thousand pounds a piece. That's why I thought it was always a foundation. They put a wharf on top of the foundation in the wet spot. Yeah. Well, what they could do is fill it with sand and mud, level it out. It hardens, and then when they don't need any more, it washes away. Yeah. Yep, and here's the, the I can think of. And this keeps on going, but nobody saw nothing. I mean, it wasn't occupied that much in the mainland, but I can't imagine how many carts, like we, you know, use wheelbarrows and everything mm -hmm. else, but how many carts, how much manpower, where'd all these boulders come from? It's just unbelievable. I just keep on shaking my head more and more. Yeah, uh, it's mind-boggling how much work went into it. Now, this yeah. is the, this is where they think the Y is, and I don't know if they're going towards your uh, Bacon Cross, going straight to the swamp, because obviously the lower right-hand corner is the top of the swamp, right? You agree well, with me? They're on going that? north from where that road is. It's going to hit the cross no matter what. So, oh. Chris, you see if we make a left turn and that one path is going way up. That's towards the eye, must be, right? And then right. there's one that goes north towards up the center of the cross or A or cone A or cone B, somewhere along there. No, you, you see the bottom of this picture? That's the eye of the swamp right there, isn't it? Right there. <laughs> that, 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 black, that black is part of the swamp, right? Yeah, that's... That's the peak. That's the yeah. peak of the swamp. Okay. Now the path is going off, straight off towards the north. Now the next picture, see? Huh. One's going off to the right, 
which would be yeah. towards the money pit. You follow me so far? Yeah. No, I understand. Yep. This Y to the right, it's going to the money pit or lot 15, 13, 16. They had the tire pit, you know, everything else. With this other stone area that I'm interested in, why is it just, why do they think it's just going and going and going? Why didn't they stop the rocks right here or there? You know, why is it going towards Nolan's Cross? There you go, Chris. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I'd say it makes for good TV. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Being serious. It just seems like, yeah, the the animation looks like it's like a huge island now. It's like. (laughs) And then, yep. And then Michelle says, what do you think the purpose of these roads were for Jake and Chris? What do you think the purpose was? Your own opinion. It was soft ground. I mean, if they were hauling heavy stuff, they needed some stability so the carts wouldn't be sinking in. So that makes sense to me. I mean, it's a lot of work just to haul a few things, but I I, I don't know. Yeah. I really don't. It's a lot of work. I hear you. And to haul something, even if that was filled with blue clay, which they had showed some residual, those rocks would be brutal. And I always told Michelle, I saw this thing in Arizona, that when everybody went west, even the wagon wheels at that time made ruts in hard boulders from the continuous trail going over and over. And that's what I'm telling these people here, these people, my members, we don't see any groovable, easiest access if these two stone pathways were used to haul heavy stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah, uh, yeah, definitely. Yep. And then George says it could have been a drainage system. I have no idea, George. It's just uh, more well, things. French drains a little bit different than that. I mean, I, I don't know how much they've got into that. If there's a V underneath there, if it's uh, like a trench, that would be a French drain. But That would be a good indication. Right. Yeah, but I, I don't think that's been discovered, anything like that. Nope, that's all we know is there's cribbing underneath. That's all we know. Exactly. Until we get the date of the cribbing, even though Carmen says that one eyeball was dated 1640 or below, yep. we got to go from that and put all the dates together. And here's some uh, red rock they're finding on the side of the uh, uh, swamp. There's more of this red rock material on the side of the swamp. Was it sandstone or is it? They just said it was red, red rock, as far as I know. That'd be iron in it. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, possibly could be iron in it. Yep. And there's a big overall shot of the swamp. There's our buddy Dan Hetsky. Yeah, I like Dan. He's he's very very nice. Yep. Very knowledgeable. His his mind is just. Psh. Yeah, my main man, Carmen. And this is what he found part of the uh, cannon, salute cannon stand that he says it is. But I have no idea. I'm still waiting for the plumb bob explanation. (laughs) (laughs) Then again, I keep on looking at these rocks. The bigger rocks seem to be on the, the bigger rocks seem to be on the edge. 
and the smaller rocks seem to be in the middle. I don't know if I'm the only one that keeps on noticing that, but the bigger rocks do seem to be towards the edge. Yeah, I'd like to comment about uh, the sleds from Chris Morford down there. He said, no wheel ruts. Why not sleds? Yeah, that makes sense. Yep, Chris. Hello, Chris. Thanks for coming in. Pulling sleds over the rocks. Yeah. Oh, my God. What kind of damage would that be? Wood over those kind of cobbles. Oh, my God. Could be. Easier than wheels, for sure. Yeah. And they had snow, whatever, ice. Then yeah, there's this would not have been a seasonal work for them. Right. All right. Let me see here. Okay. We're almost done, guys. Here's the uh, boulder that they pointed to with the uh, ring bolt uh, cut off there. Yeah. There it is. Well, I'll be asking Aaron about this one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just showing the members what's going on the skid road. Yep. And that's how they used to look. And that's them finding this boulder. And showing Tom if he remembers about the boulder. And he did. And there's the actual picture of Fred Nolan's ring bolt on that boulder. Uh -huh. And back to the cannonball question, and that's sort of the stand on the end. Could be a smaller salute cannon. That could be. Well, guys, that's about it. If we got any more questions, and then we'll tidy it up, guys. I thank you so much for uh, being with me through your presentation and through my little presentation that we keep everybody updated on the Tuesday night show. I thank you guys so much. Thank you, John. Yeah, Great thanks, stuff. John. Thanks for inviting us again. We'll be back, hopefully. Yeah, we appreciate the venue. Yeah. Sure. No problem. And again... Members, you have any last-minute questions for these guys? I mean, they'll be in my group. They will correspond with you through comments at their time, their leisure. And um, I really appreciate you guys coming in. I appreciate all my members. Um, and again, I thank you so much. But don't forget, guys, always go forward. You may get a setback, but go forward. Right. You have yeah. a dream, believe in your dream, stay positive. No matter how old you are, it doesn't matter. A hundred years old, 90 years old, you still got that little guy and little girl in your body. I don't care how old you are. Stay positive, stay strong. And also guys out there, stay safe. Good night, everybody. Thank you so much. You guys want to say good night and I'll give yeah. you a good night. Good night, guys. Thanks, yeah. Thanks for coming in and listening. Yeah, we really appreciate you spending time with us. And John, thank, thanks as always. It's always fun. Always. Okay, let's... Uh...